Hey everyone, I hope you all had a wonderful festive season and a very happy new year. Before I get started with this episode, I want to recommend the book My Trees, A Mother's Journey from Despair to Desire by Latisse Sutton, My Trees' Mother. I wrote a blog post on My Trees' case back in June 2020, and Latisse actually reached out to me back in July of 2021 about her book, asking that I share it with my followers. The book is a beautiful tribute to my trees, as well as a raw and emotional telling of Latisse's own journey. I'll put a link in the show notes to where you can find the book. In June 2020, at the height of the racial justice protests that took place as a result of George Floyd's murder, the New York Times published a study titled, How Did the Police Actually Spend Their Time? The title is pretty self-explanatory. It looks at how the police in the United States spend their time. What's really striking are the figures of how few calls to the police in America are actually calls regarding reports of violent crime. For example, in 2020, just 1% of calls made to the police in New Orleans were regarding a violent crime. In Seattle, it was just 1.3% of calls. This study looked at the same figures from 10 large American cities, and all of them were similar to the ones reported in New Orleans and Seattle. So what are people calling the police about? Traffic incidents are up there, but the vast majority of calls are regarding non-criminal miscellaneous complaints. The case I'm about to share with you demonstrates why having services to call in situations that don't rise to the level of needing police attention would be really useful. I'm your host, Natalie, and this is Talk Murder With Me, Episode 19, The Death of Maitrese Richardson. Maitrese LaVon Richardson was born April 30th, 1985, to Latisse Sutton and Michael Richardson in Covina, California. Michael and Latisse divorced when Maitrese was very young, and Latisse married Maitrese's stepfather, Darnell Sutton. Michael spent time in prison when Maitrese was a child, but it is unclear exactly what for. On his release, he turned his life around, immersing himself in his career in the healthcare industry. While Michael did not play much of a role in raising his daughter, he and Maitrese became closer as she got older. Maitrese was the sort of person everybody wanted to be friends with. She was smart, pretty, and kind. Dancing and cheerleading were her passions. She also enjoyed knitting and made several blankets for her mother and younger sister, April. In 2008, Maitrese graduated from California State University at Fullerton with a BA in psychology, an honors student who consistently achieved a 4.0 GPA. Maitrese was very keen to go to graduate school. She began interning at the office of Rhonda Hampton, a clinical psychologist and close family friend. During college, Maitrese did a lot of soul-searching. She dated a boy for about a year and then went through a bad breakup with said boy. She eventually came to the conclusion that she actually wasn't into guys at all, so she began dating girls, which she found made her much happier. Worried about how her mother would react, Maitrese did not tell Latisse right away. But when she did eventually come out, Latisse accepted her wholeheartedly. After college, Maitrese moved to South Los Angeles, where she lived with her great-grandmother, Mildred Hughes. She saved money working as a go-go dancer at an LGBTQ nightclub. 
In the fall of 2009, Maitrese began showing signs that something was not right. She had recently broken up with her girlfriend of two years, Tessa Moon. But it was not just the sadness caused by the breakup that resulted in her changed behavior. Maitrese suffered from bipolar disorder. Although it's not clear when she was diagnosed, it appeared she kept her illness in check and didn't let it get in the way of living her life. Latisse began receiving strange texts from Maitrese, and she began posting unusual things to her social media profiles. In one of her final Facebook posts, she wrote, quote, I just want to sleep, lol, but you know me and my crazy ideas. Let's see where they take me. Latisse tried to reach out to Maitrese on multiple occasions to find out what was going on, but she would not answer her phone. On Wednesday, September 16, 2009, Maitrese spontaneously drove from her great-grandmother's home in South LA to Malibu, arriving around dinner time. It was a distance of about 40 miles and not the most relaxing of drives, taking the driver along a series of twisting cliffside roads. She pulled into Joffrey's, one of Malibu's many high-end restaurants, got out of her car, and approached the valet. He immediately realized that something was off when Maitrese started talking to him about avenging the death of Michael Jackson. Thinking that she might just be eccentric, he got into her car and parked it. On his return, he found Maitrese in his own car, which he had left open, rifling through the glove box. He asked her if she was okay and to please get out of his car. She got out and walked into the restaurant. She left all her belongings, including her purse and phone, in her car. Maitrese went up to a table of diners and invited herself to sit down. She made some bizarre statements about being from Mars. While they thought she was strange, it's not as though she was being rude or threatening, so they played along. Maitrese ordered a Kobe steak and an Ocean Breeze cocktail. Her bill came to $89, because Malibu, but she didn't have the money to pay for it. This part was a little unclear to me, in that Matrice did have a purse but had left it in her car, but she didn't go out to get it, so I assume she either forgot it was in the car, or she knew there was no point, because she didn't have the money. The restaurant employees, being as accommodating as they could, asked if there was anyone they could call who could pay for her meal. Maitrese could only remember her great-grandmother Mildred's phone number. Mildred offered to pay over the phone, but the restaurant required a faxed signature, and Mildred did not have a fax machine. At a loss as to what to do, the manager decided he would have to call the police. According to the LA Times, he was worried about her welfare and reasoned she would be safer in custody than out on her own. He hoped that they would get in touch with her family and get her home safely. This is where things get messy. The following events demonstrate how poorly the sheriff's department handled the situation. At around 9pm, three deputies from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, the LASD, were dispatched to Joffrey's. When they arrived at the restaurant, they got the impression that Maitrese was drunk or on drugs. Maitrese was given a field sobriety test. The test revealed that she was not intoxicated. All she had to drink was one cocktail. They ended up arresting her on charges of defrauding an innkeeper and possession of marijuana. They found less than an ounce in her car. 
While they could have taken her in for a psychiatric evaluation, it appears that she was arrested because it was the easier option. The restaurant did not press charges against Maitrese for not paying her bill. Maitrese's car was impounded with all of her personal belongings inside, including her phone and purse. The deputies drove her to the Malibu Lost Hills Sheriff's Station, about a 20-minute drive north of Malibu. According to the station logbook, she made four calls while in custody. She told the deputies they were to her great-grandmother Mildred, but the calls were not recorded due to faulty recording equipment. What's strange is that Mildred insisted she never received any calls from Maitrese while she was in the jail that evening. Latisse called the station, asking whether they planned to keep her in custody for the night or release her. She told the deputy that she wasn't afraid of Maitrese being in custody. She'd rather her be in the jail than wandering around in the hills in the middle of the night. Furthermore, Latisse was worried about her mental state. If they planned to release her that night, Latisse said, she would come pick her up. If they planned to keep her in custody, she would come and get her in the morning. The drive from Latisse's home to the Lost Hills station would take about 50 minutes. Her younger daughter April, who had school in the morning, was also at home. If she could avoid getting April out of bed to drive to the sheriff's station in the middle of the night, she would. Latisse said to the deputy something that she would not forget for the rest of her days. I would hate to wake up to a morning report of, girl lost somewhere and her head chopped off. Of course she meant it as a joke, but it was also a warning of sorts to the deputy. The deputy assured Latisse multiple times that they would keep Maitrese in custody and release her in the morning. Satisfied that she was safe, Latisse thanked the deputy and hung up around 12.30 a.m. Contrary to what Latisse was told on the phone, about 5 or 10 minutes after the call ended, Maitrese was released from custody. She was told that she could sleep in the lobby and wait for her mother to pick her up in the morning. But remember that Maitrese was not of sound mind at that point, regardless of what the officers said. She was free to leave, and that's exactly what she did. Security footage showed her being discharged and leaving the station. This footage, however, would go missing for months, but more on that later. It was totally dark out, and the Lost Hills Sheriff's Station really is in the middle of nowhere. Maitrese, without her purse, phone, or even a jacket, began to walk back the way they originally drove to the station, towards the Santa Monica Mountains. The terrain is treacherous and near impossible to navigate in the dark. According to Google Maps, it would take more than six hours to walk the 16 miles through the mountains back to Malibu, assuming it was light out, you had the right equipment, and knew where you were going. Nobody knew where Matrice planned to go when she disappeared into the night, but she never reached her destination. At 4.30 a.m. the next day, Latisse called the station to inquire about picking up Maitrese, but was informed that she had been released and left. Latisse was stunned. Collecting herself, she asked the deputy on the phone how she could file a missing persons report. Her concern, however, was met with indifference, and she was told that not enough time had passed to file a report. She needed to wait 24 hours. 
About two or three hours later, Bill Smith, a former reporter for KTLA News who lived in the area, called the police to report a woman wandering around his backyard that morning around 6.30 a.m. Smith's residence, about six miles west of the Lost Hills Station, was located at the bottom of Dark Canyon, in a gated community. He described the woman as being slim and black with Afro-style hair. Smith called out of his window to ask if she was okay, to which she responded that she was just resting. By the time he put something on so he could go out and investigate, she was gone, he said. From the beginning, the sheriff's department completely mismanaged the investigation into Mitrice Richardson's disappearance. It became clear very early on that they just weren't that interested in finding her. They waited two days before they went to Bill Smith's house. In his yard, they found sneaker tracks, which Smith told them he did not recognize, but they did not investigate the tracks further. They did search Mitrice's car, which had been impounded, finding personal items including several notebooks she was using as journals. Her last entry before she disappeared revealed that she likely hadn't slept for five nights. Mental health professionals who read the journals at the request of the police said she may have been suffering from a severe episode related to bipolar disorder. Meanwhile, Latisse was frantically calling the sheriff's department, trying to file a missing persons report. Once the report was filed, the case was in the hands of both the Los Angeles Police Department and the Sheriff's Department. The family were promised a massive two-day search beginning on Saturday, September 19th, three days after Mitrice disappeared. They were going to pull out all the stops, using helicopters, search dogs, every resource available to them. But when the day arrived, there was no such search. There were four deputies canvassing some of the neighborhoods in the area. The search ended before it got dark. It was meant to begin again on the 20th, but it never did. It was, by all accounts, a total joke and an insult to Mitrice's family. They were becoming increasingly convinced that they could not count on the police to take her disappearance seriously, so they took matters into their own hands. They spent days passing out flyers and organizing and carrying out searches of their own. Meanwhile, after realizing how bad this could look for them, the deputies and higher-ups at the Lost Hills Sheriff's Station began fiercely defending their conduct from the night my trees disappeared. They made statements aiming to justify her arrest at the restaurant, but insisted that when they released her, she seemed perfectly fine. She was lucid and didn't exhibit any mental problems, said Steve Whitmore, an L.A. County Sheriff's Department spokesperson. Latisse, however, did not believe a word of it. The reason the police had been called in the first place was because the restaurant manager believed that something was wrong with Mitrice. There were plenty of people at Joffrey's that night who would back this up. Latisse also reasoned that they must have thought she was behaving abnormally, otherwise they wouldn't have felt the need to give her a sobriety test. The excuses they came up with for letting Mitrice go changed frequently over time. They first claimed that the jail was too full, which was later proven to be untrue. They also said that they had no reason to keep her there, even though they told Latisse they would not release her until morning. They tried to justify their actions by saying they're, quote, not a babysitting service. Just a quick aside, Sheriff Lee Baca was the L.A. County Sheriff from 1998 to 2014, 
holding office at the time of Mitrice's disappearance. A quick Google search on his name shows that he is pretty much the definition of a bad apple. Baca was involved in multiple scandals during his time as sheriff, the most notable being lying to the FBI during an official inquiry into abuse of inmates in LA County jails. In February 2020, he began a three-year prison sentence for his role in obstructing the inquiry. Paul Tanaka, the LA County undersheriff and Baca's second-in-command, was also convicted of conspiracy to obstruct justice and obstruction of justice in the same inquiry. He was sentenced to five years in prison, which he began serving in January 2017. Tanaka served as undersheriff for two years, from June 2011 to August 2013. Before his tenure as undersheriff, it was found that he was affiliated with the white supremacist gang, the Linwood Vikings. I realize Tanaka wasn't at the sheriff's office when Mitrice disappeared, but I still feel like it's important to mention, if anything just to give you an idea of the types of people in the highest ranking positions at the LASD. Baca constantly dodged requests from Mitrice's family for information, and his deputies followed his lead. Despite all the lying and gaslighting, he insisted that his department did nothing wrong. Frustrated with the lack of progress being made in the investigation, Michael Richardson decided that enough was enough. Michael called the mayor of Malibu, Andy Stern, to express his concerns. Stern, not particularly interested in what Michael had to say, told him he was on his way to a meeting and didn't have time to talk. But Michael was not going to give up so easily. Stern was also a Malibu real estate magnate who sold properties worth millions of dollars. Michael called him on his real estate business number, but this time told him he was a famous football star interested in purchasing one of Stern's properties. This got Stern's attention, and he offered to meet Michael right away. When Stern realized who Michael really was, he was mortified. The fact he had initially blown him off would look really bad for him as mayor. In November 2009, as a result of Michael's efforts, the city of Malibu authorized a $15,000 reward for anyone with information that would help locate Mitrice. At the same time, Latisse and a group of close friends were pleading with the Lost Hills Sheriff Station to let them see the security footage from the night Mitrice disappeared. Latisse hoped it might provide some insight into Mitrice's state of mind on the night she was arrested. Her requests were stonewalled, however. Captain Tom Martin of the Lost Hills Sheriff Station went as far as to say that the footage didn't even exist. Then on January 6, 2010, they were asked to come to the station to discuss the footage. Latisse, Mitrice's Aunt Lauren, and two friends sat down with Captain Martin and Sheriff Baca, only to be told that the footage did, in fact, exist. Somehow, it seemed to have magically appeared in Captain Martin's desk drawer. Oddly enough, by the end of the month, Captain Martin, who had been in charge of the Lost Hill Station for six years, was promoted to commander and transferred to the Monterey Park Station. His new workplace was over an hour away from his home, while the Lost Hill Station was just minutes away. It's just interesting timing for a promotion and relocation. Even though Mitrice's family now knew the footage existed, Due to technical difficulties, it would be several months before they were able to view it. 
On January 9th, 2010, the LASD finally conducted the kind of search the family had been hoping for. The search was carried out by 336 trained volunteer searchers. They were on horseback and on foot, aided by search dogs. They scoured 18 square miles of ridges, canyons, and trails. A helicopter picked people up, dispatching them to -to harder-to-reach areas. Divers scoured Ringe Dam on Malibu Creek. The search, however, did not lead to Maitrese or any clues regarding her whereabouts. The beautiful thing about today is that they did not find a cadaver, Michael Richardson said afterwards. Finally, either in March or April, the family were able to view the security footage Latisse had fought so hard to get access to. Immediately, Latisse could see a number of red flags on the video. For one, parts of it had been edited out, which only added to her suspicion that the sheriff's department were hiding something. She could tell from the video that Maitrese was not well. She's grabbing at a door and swinging back and forth, Latisse said. She's pulling at the back of her hair. The footage also showed a deputy leaving the station about two minutes after Maitrese. Latisse and Michael were shocked. This was the first time they learned that somebody might have seen or talked to her outside the station that night. But, of course, the deputy was not identified by the LASD, and I couldn't find any indication that they looked into whether he had contact with Maitrese. In late June 2010, after finally being able to view the footage, Latisse filed a negligence and wrongful death lawsuit against the LASD. According to Latisse and her lawyer, Leo Terrell, their main reason for filing the lawsuit was to give them the right to demand information about the night Maitrese was arrested. As the months passed with no answers, Latisse was coming to terms with the painful reality that her daughter was almost definitely dead. Michael was holding out hope that Maitrese was still out there somewhere. It was August 9th, 2010, that brought the news everyone had been dreading, nearly 11 months after Maitrese went missing. Park rangers were patrolling the rough, mountainous terrain of Dark Canyon in search of illegal marijuana farms, which were known to occur in the area, given how remote it is. Reaching these spots is no easy feat. There are no trails, so it requires scaling steep rock faces and cutting through much of the wild undergrowth. The area they were searching was about eight miles from the Lost Hills Sheriff's Station and two miles from Bill Smith's home. Bill Smith being the homeowner who spotted a woman of Maitrese's description in his yard in the early hours of September 17th. They were making their way through a deep ravine when they came across human remains. The park rangers called in their finding just after 12 p.m. Before I go any further, I just want to highlight that the State Penal Code of California dictates that law enforcement must notify the coroner as soon as they find out that human remains have been discovered. According to a report put out by the coroner's office, a Lost Hills Sheriff's deputy arrived at the scene at 1.30 p.m., but the coroner's team weren't notified of the situation until nearly 3 p.m. At 5 p.m., the seven-person team from the coroner's office, led by Assistant Chief Coroner Ed Winter, arrived at the Lost Hills station, where they were told to go to wait for a helicopter that would airlift them to the bottom of the canyon. Twenty minutes later, a helicopter arrived, but not for Winter and his team. Two detectives got in and were taken to the scene. 
The coroner's team waited another hour and 40 minutes, but no helicopter ever arrived for them. By this point, it was getting dark. Winter assumed that they would be going in the morning, but this was not to be. The family were notified that remains had been found and that they likely belonged to my trees. When Latisse asked if they could come to the site, however, the deputy on the phone told her there was no point in coming. Latisse asked if the site would be treated as a crime scene and when they would be removing Mitrice's body. The deputy told Latisse that the area would be secured and treated as a crime scene and that the remains would be airlifted out in the morning because it was too dark to take them that evening. But instead of doing as they said they would, at 8pm that evening, the deputies haphazardly gathered up the remains, put them in the helicopter, and flew back to the station. The coroner's office was shocked at the actions of the sheriff's department. As the LA Times reported, Winters stated that, quote, he was very clear with the sheriff's officials regarding how the remains should be handled, and could not think of another case in which a police agency had moved entire skeletal remains without the coroner's approval. They did this, despite the fact the state code says, quote, a body shall not be disturbed or moved from the position or place of death without permission of the coroner or the coroner's appointed deputy. I'll just say here that the coroner's report ultimately stated that Mitrice's cause of death was undetermined. On August 13th, Sheriff Baca made a statement, announcing that the body found in Dark Canyon was that of Mitrice Richardson. We have no indication of a homicide at this point. I don't believe that the remains are capable of telling us a story, he said. He went on to say that they only found a skull and some bones. Mitrice's family and friends, as well as members of the public who had been following the case, took issue with Baca's statement, and for good reason. For one, they did not only find a skull and some bones, they actually found a good portion of Mitrice's remains, which were partially mummified. Clea Koff, a former United Nations forensic anthropologist who runs an LA-based nonprofit, the Missing Persons Identification Resource Center, consulted with Latisse about Mitrice's case. Koff also was not buying Baca's statement that the remains were incapable of telling a story. It was obvious that the LASD just wanted to shut the case and move on, without really analyzing any of the evidence available to them. Dr. Rhonda Hampton, Latisse's friend whom Mitrice had been interning for, said, quote, The problem that I have with this case is the investigators were too quick to conclude that it was not murder. They never put out that there is a possibility of homicide. There is no way Mitrice could have hiked that canyon. It's understandable why the LASD didn't want to contemplate homicide as a cause of Mitrice's death. It would look terrible for them if after releasing this vulnerable woman in the middle of the night against her mother's wishes, she was then murdered by some deranged monster stalking through the mountains. So they tried throwing a bunch of different accident theories at the wall to see if anything would stick. For example, they suggested Mitrice may have died of anaphylactic shock from poison oak, or she might have been bitten by a rattlesnake. Latisse was able to convince Sheriff Baca to let her go see where Mitrice's remains were found. She was accompanied by Rhonda Hampton, her sister Lauren, and Clea Koff. The four women set up a small memorial at the scene. While they were there, they found one of Mitrice's finger bones, further demonstrating how careless the sheriff's deputies had been when collecting the remains. 
After the initial recovery in August 2010, law enforcement would visit the site three more times. The final time, on February 13, 2011, they found eight more bones they believed to belong to Mitrice. They included fragments of her ribs, fingers, and wrist. I'm going to go over some of the issues with the recovery process of the remains by the LASD, as well as some questionable details about the scene, which have resulted in skepticism regarding Mitrice's cause of death. Clea Koff, the forensic anthropologist consulting with Latisse, explained that it is pretty much unheard of for a coroner to give permission to someone outside of the coroner's office to do the recovery of the remains. When the coroner is carrying out the recovery process, she said, they would photo-document the scene and the stages of recovery, and they would collect anything from the scene that would be useful during the autopsy, like soil samples. The sheriff's deputies did none of these things, so when the remains were brought to the coroner, they had no sense of the relationship between the remains and the scene. There were, however, some photos taken by the park rangers, which were eventually given to the coroner. These photos revealed the following details. Mitrice's skull was fully detached from her neck. It sat upside down, without the mandible, on the upper torso. Her right leg had been separated from the rest of her body. It lay about two yards away, up a slight incline. The femur bone was detached from the rest of the leg. These bones showed no signs of damage by animals. Mitrice was naked, and only some of her clothing was recovered, including her jeans, belt, and bra. The clothing was discovered about 600 feet away from her remains, down the canyon in a creek. Her t-shirt, socks, and sneakers were nowhere to be found. Lieutenant Michael Rawson claimed it was animals that removed the clothing, but there were no rips or tears that would point to this. The bra had been unfastened, as it would have been if Mitrice, or someone else, had taken it off. The belt was not damaged either. Imagine an animal taking off a belt without causing any damage. Furthermore, why would animals take the clothes and leave them 600 feet away from the remains? What about the clothing that was never found? What would the animals have done with those? It's absurd to suggest that this was the work of animals, Kliakoff said. She added that apart from some rust on the belt, the clothing would be wearable after a wash or two. The state of the clothing made her wonder whether it had really been out in the elements for 11 months. Another factor that Koff found strange was that Mitrice's remains were partially mummified, rather than fully decomposed. Mummification occurs when a corpse is exposed to chemicals, extreme cold, extremely low humidity, or lack of air, which results in preservation of the soft tissue and organs. Mummification can obviously be deliberate, but it can also happen by accident in the right conditions. It's also more likely to occur when a body is clothed, as clothing provides a layer of protection against insects. Michael Kessler, who wrote an excellent long-form article in LA Magazine about Mitrice's case, wrote that while it's not impossible that a body would partially mummify in the elements, it's certainly not the norm, particularly given the climate in Malibu while Mitrice was missing. I actually looked on one of those websites that tell you what the weather was like during a certain month and year, and as far as I could tell, Temperatures did not drop below freezing any time between September 2009 and August 2010. It's also odd that animals didn't find her remains. 
For these reasons, Koff could not see how the LASD could completely rule out homicide. You've got the naked body of a woman who you know was in a vulnerable state, within two miles of where she was last seen, in an area with which she had no expertise, in an unexplained position, Koff said. Usually, the default move would be to consider this a homicide, at least until you can rule it out. She thought that perhaps my trees had been kept somewhere else, before she was moved to the location where she was ultimately found. Her hyoid bone, which would likely have been broken if she had been strangled, was never found. While the sheriff's department didn't help the coroner when they went rogue at the scene the day Mitrice's remains were discovered, it does seem as though the coroner's office dropped the ball back at the lab. No craniotomy was performed on Mitrice's skull to see whether she had suffered head trauma. Mitrice's pubic hair was not tested to see whether foreign fibers or semen were present. The sheriff's department and the coroner were both at fault in the handling of Mitrice's clothing. It had been stuffed in the body bag along with her remains, and the coroner did not find it for weeks. When they did finally find it, they didn't test it for any foreign fibers or bodily fluids. One theory is that she may have stumbled upon one of the illegal marijuana grow operations in the mountains and was murdered by a pot farmer. My daughter is a city girl, Latisse said. She did not wander into that canyon. I believe she was suffering from mental illness, and somebody took advantage of that. I believe she was possibly raped, definitely killed, and eventually dumped. In late December 2010, armed with all the information she had learned from Kliakov, Latisse met with Sheriff Baca and requested that Mitrice's remains be exhumed and re-examined by the FBI. Surprisingly, Baca accepted Latisse's request. He was even open to the possibility that Mitrice's death was not an accident. I've always felt that it should have been treated from the offset as a possible homicide, he said. When you say it's not a murder, you better know what you're talking about, and I don't think we've been able to conclude that. On July 13, 2011, Mitrice's remains were exhumed. The re-examination of the remains would not be carried out by the FBI, but by the LASD crime lab. While Latisse wasn't thrilled that the LASD would once again be handling her daughter's remains, she was relieved that they finally seemed to be doing something. All I can hope is that they do the job with integrity and get some answers. Maybe they'll determine a cause of death, maybe they won't. But at the very least, they can rule things out, which is more than anyone has done so far, Latisse said. If anyone has any information as to whether the exhumation yielded any results, please let me know. I scoured the internet and couldn't find anything, which I thought was weird. According to CNN, Ed Winter, the assistant chief coroner, said that the family had a private pathologist examine the remains, but I couldn't find any info beyond that. Latisse and Michael separately filed wrongful death lawsuits against the LASD. These lawsuits, which were consolidated in early 2011, alleged that Mitrice's civil rights were violated, that she should have been taken for a psychiatric evaluation, and kept in custody. In August 2011, a settlement of $900,000 was approved, which they split equally between them. In February 2016, the California Attorney General at the time, Kamala Harris, agreed to look into the allegations of misconduct by the Sheriff's Department during the investigation into Mitrice's disappearance and death. 
The sudden change of direction at the AG's office was totally unexpected. Maitrese's family and friends had been lobbying them to make this move for years with no luck. They hoped that this could lead to a formal investigation into the LASD's conduct. However, after looking into the case for nearly a year, A.G. Harris's office sent a letter to Michael Richardson, explaining that they could find no evidence of wrongdoing in the handling of Mitrice's case by the LASD, and they would not be looking into it further. Michael, deeply disappointed with the decision, accused Harris of only taking interest in his daughter's case to gain publicity during her race for the United States Senate, to which she was elected in November 2016. There was a glimmer of hope when the new L.A. County Sheriff, Alex Villanueva, who replaced Lee Baca, said at a memorial service for Mitrice in September 2019 that he wanted to assess the whole case from the beginning with a fresh pair of eyes. However, a few weeks later, Sheriff Villanueva announced that there would not be a new investigation, as he had reread the department's documents on the case and, quote, saw no reason to rehash a case already subjected to investigations by the State Attorney General's Office, the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office, and the Sheriff's Department's internal review. He did outline changes the LASD would be implementing to avoid what happened to Maitrice happening to someone else. These changes included no longer having to wait 24 hours to file a missing persons report for an adult. A report could now be filed right away. Deputies now ensure that people have their cell phones and other belongings before they are released from LA County jails. People exhibiting mental health problems would now be evaluated before being released. Mitrice's case has never been closed, Villanueva said, and the department continues to welcome any new information. This case raises so many questions about the conduct of the sheriff's department. How could they fail a victim and their family so miserably? They were neglectful and careless, both while Mitrice was in custody and after she disappeared. Would Mitrice's case have been handled differently if she had been white? I have a feeling it would have. The sheriff's department's negligence and lack of compassion were on full display. If they had taken responsibility and kept her in custody as they said they would, she would have gone home with her mother in the morning. Mitrice's death was completely avoidable. To this day, not one person has been held accountable. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. As I said at the top, I'll put a link to where you can find Latisse's book. I highly recommend it if you'd like to learn more about this case and Mitrice's story. If you can, I'd absolutely love it if you gave me a 5-star rating and review on Apple or a rating on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com talkmurder. The links to my social media accounts are in the show notes for this episode. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me at talkmurderwithme at gmail.com. Until next time.